And it's a great joy to be with you. Would you please open your Bibles to Hosea chapter 6. And I just want to remind you that this coming week we have our Christmas Eve service on Friday at Aldersgate. So don't forget. Hosea chapter 6. And then we're going to go back to Genesis. So if you can, I want you to invite you to stand up. Starting in verse 6 of Hosea chapter 6, the Lord says through the prophet, For I desire chesed, steadfast love, not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. But like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. There they dealt faithlessly with me. Now let's go to Genesis chapter 9. Starting verse 8. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. It's for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you, then never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. And never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, what a joy to come to your house with your people through your Son and power by your Spirit. So we all here, as your children, we cry out to you and say, feed us, feed us, give us the bread of life. We need you. Help me to be faithful. Help this wonderful congregation to be faithful to you, Lord. And help us to see the glory of Christ in the scriptures. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. You have heard the proverb, familiarity breeds contempt. Familiarity breeds contempt. And the basic idea behind this proverb is that when you're too close to someone or something, It's very easy for us to start losing the reverence, the respect, the awe for such a thing or such a person. Familiarity breeds contempt. The more you are exposed to someone or something, the more the thing or person becomes boring and less appreciation you have for that person or thing. And 
sadly, that happens with us when it comes to the Bible. Familiarity with some names of the Bible. Adam, Noah, Abraham, Joseph, David, Moses. Cause us to lose all reverence. We start thinking that we know everything about those characters. The same with the stories of the Bible. The story of creation, the story of the flood, the story of Israel in the wilderness, the story of Abraham on Mount Moriah. We are very familiar with these stories. And the familiarity, sadly, can bring a contempt where we think we know everything that that passage is all about. So my prayer is, especially as we are going to be walking through these two very well-known, very familiar stories of creation and the flood, is that the Holy Spirit would deliver us from this type of sinful familiarity that breeds contempt. But instead, our eyes would be open, our hearts would be eager to learn and and that we would be standing in awe and fear of what the Lord has for us. Amen? So, the outline is very simple. And it's so simple that I don't even have here. So, it's just the Adamic covenant and then the Noahic covenant. Okay, we're just going to briefly walk through these two covenants. The Adamic covenant and then the Noahic covenant. And just to briefly, and that's important, to review what we saw last Lord's Day we saw that as we are studying the Bible, this whole series has been about the structure of the Bible and how the Bible fits together. And we are learning and looking at the storyline of the Scriptures. And we saw that there is a, a covenantal framework that holds the story or the drum of redemption together. There is a covenantal structure that holds the whole drama together, giving coherence to the plot to the narrative. We saw that there are many types of covenants in the Bible. For example, covenant between Abraham and Abimelech, between Joshua and the Gibeonites, between David and Jonathan, and many other types of covenants. But there are six major covenants that hold the story of God's redemption together. That would be the covenant with Noah, but prior to that, the covenant with Adam. Then we have covenant with Abraham. Covenant with Moses. And, and you see that you have the name of the covenant mediator right there. Covenant with David. And then the new covenant that Jesus is the mediator. And we saw last Lord's Day that many among the Reformed circles, they try to divide the covenants and... And you split the covenants, and you have the covenant of works, and then you have the covenant of grace, and then you have unconditional covenants, and then you have conditional covenants. And I think that the best way is to put away these divisions that are not in the Bible itself, and just look at one plan of redemption, one plan of salvation, and how these covenants, as God's revelation is being progressively revealed, so are these covenants. And they build upon each other, and they work together to bring the coherence and the plan of redemption. So, Gentry and Wellam, they write, The covenants are not independent, 
and unrelated to each other. It's not like you have one covenant of works and that's completely separate. And then you have the covenant of grace and the old covenant. No, they, we don't have this type of separation. Or this covenant is unconditional and this is conditional and they don't connect to each other. No. The covenants are not indep- independent and unrelated to each other. Rather, they build on each other, disclosing to us God's plan. As the covenants unfold, we discover how God's promises to restore His elect to covenant relationship with Him from every tribe, nation, people, and tongue is ultimately achieved through the obedient work of His Son, which was His plan from all eternity. The other important observation as we continue here is to remember that covenants are very important, but they are not the most important thing. The covenants, they serve They have a purpose. And the purpose of the covenant is... What is the purpose of a marriage covenant? To bring two people together. A man and a woman together. So they can live in a loving, gracious relationship. The purpose of the covenant is to bring people together. Remember, the heart of the covenant in the Bible is... I'll be your God and you'll be my people. It's relational. And that's the major theme of the Bible. You can look at the beginning and the end of the Bible. The Bible begins with God creating man to dwell with him. The Bible ends with a new creation and God dwelling with his people. And the covenants work. They serve this purpose. And it's easy and tempting, especially among Reformed circles like us, to start prizing the covenant so much that the covenants become the big deal, the major thing. It would be like saying that John the Baptist is the man and not Jesus. John the Baptist has a role to point us to Jesus. And the covenants have a role in pointing us to this glorious relationship between God and His people. So, we saw Chris Woodall. He says, each successive covenant agreement effectively and progressively unfolded throughout the course of history towards the original intention of the Father's heart. That's a beautiful statement. Each successive covenant agreement effectively and progressively unfolded throughout the course of history towards the original intention of the Father's heart. What was the intention of the Father's heart in creation? And dwell with His people. A loving, gracious relationship. That was just like the Trinity. A loving relationship between God and man. And remember the, the meaning of covenant, the Latin, to come together. And in the Hebrew, the idea of having a meal together. And that's the plan of the Father, to bring sons and daughters into His table to fellowship with Him. So that's important to keep in mind as we are going to study the covenants. Amen? Are we good here? So, let's move to the first one, the Adamic covenant. Well, that covers Genesis 1 through 3. So, as we strive to behold the coherence, the beauty, the unity of the Bible, we start right in the beginning. In the beginning, we will develop everything that's flowing from there to the rest of scriptures. And I just want to tell you, I'm not going to much details here because I plan to preach through Genesis. So that's why I'm not going to spend much time here. 
And that's not the plan. The plan is just to show you how these covenants hold together the whole storyline of the Bible. So I'll be, I'll be not going into details of the covenant that we will do when we walk through Genesis. And one fascinating aspect of Genesis 1 through 3 and the covenant with Adam is that the word covenant is not present in Genesis 1 through 3. You don't have the word berit, covenant. You don't hear about God cutting a covenant. And that's why there are some faithful scholars that they believe that there is no covenant in creation. There is no covenant with Adam. There is no covenant in Genesis 1 through 3. I will argue the opposite. And I don't believe that just because you don't have the word that the thing is not there. So for example, in Isaiah 66 verse 1, Listen to this, Isaiah 66, verse 1. Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me, or the palace that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? Does he use the word king here? But God is clearly pictured as a king on his throne, on his palace. Do you need the word king you see that Isaiah is talking about the royalty of God? No. In the same way in Genesis 1 through 3, you don't need the word berit, covenant, to know that there is the establishment of a covenant there. The essential elements of a covenant are found in Genesis 1 through 3. You have the parties named, you have conditions of obedience, you have curse for transgression, you have blessings, all the elements of a covenant. One scholar, Jeffrey Niehaus, he says, knowledge, knowledge from the ancient Near East has now made it possible to understand that the account of creation is cast in the form of a second millennium Caesarean vassal treaty. He says, it articulates major elements of a cov covenant from that time, including a title, historical prologue, stipulations, witness, blessings, and curses. The covenant nature of the creation account enables us to understand that at the outset, some essential matters. And then he says, one, God was from the beginning a great king, a suzerian. He created a visible kingdom, the world. And he installed royalty, the man and the woman, as vassal king, king and queen over the kingdom. So language-wise, the how it's structured points to a covenantal nature in Genesis 1 through 3. Another we read in Hosea chapter 6. It says, For I desire Hesed, the covenantal faithfulness, love, and not just your sacrifice. The sacrifice must be following from this love, not in the place of the love. The knowledge of God. What is this knowledge of God? Relationship. Rather than burnt offerings. And then he says, but like Adam, like Adam, Israel transgressed the covenant. There they dealt faithlessly with me. So Hosea is saying that just like Adam, Israel broke the covenant. So Hosea implies that there was a covenant right in the beginning. Another important aspect, and 
to understand the covenantal nature of Genesis 1 through 3. And you can open there, Genesis 1. Turn there with me, Genesis chapter 1. And the use of image and likeness of God. The words image and likeness of God imply a covenantal language also. <clears throat> so in Genesis 1, starting verse 26, we read, Then Elohim, God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and, female, and female, he created them. When the Bible says that Adam was created in the likeness of God, it's implying a very special relationship that Adam had with God. And that would be the likeness of a son and a father. Likeness implies sonship. And you remember that sonship is a family language that implies covenant in a family. So, according to Luke chapter 3.38, Adam was the son of God. The likeness later tells that Seth, Adam had a son, and his son was born in the likeness of Adam. So you see that there is this similarity, likeness, of a father to a son. The word image, when the scripture says the man was made, Adam was made in the image of God, is stating that Adam had a very special position and status as king under God. Greg Davison and Kenneth Turner, they write, as stewards, Adam and Eve were to serve as representatives of the ultimate ruler, Yahweh. This expectation is, is wrapped into the description of being made not as gods or demigods, but in the image of God. This was a familiar phrase in the ancient Near East, commonly applied to idols or kings as rep representatives of the gods on earth. So, for example, in Daniel 3.1, we read that King Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, and this image is of, basically of himself. And he would place in places, and this image represented him. It's as if he would place an image right here, and that would imply that he was present here. And that's why people had to worship that image. Imply that the king is here. And by God placing and making Adam after his image, that's the picture. The Adam is his vice regent. He's like the second king now. He's representing the king on earth. The terms to rule, using Genesis 1, 26, 28, is particularly true of kings, as Psalm 72, verse 8 illustrates. The term to conquer, subdue, speaks of the work of a king also. For example, 2 Samuel 8, 11. That's all royal or regal terminology. And why is that important? Because that implies covenant. A king makes covenant. A king enters into covenant with his vassals. So, Gentry and Wellen, they here's the summary. They say, in the cultural and linguistic setting of the 15th century BC, when Moses wrote Genesis, 
And according to the literary techniques embedded in the text and the framework provided by the meta-narrative, image and likeness speaks of man's relationship to God as son and his relationship to creation as servant king. In the ancient Near East, both the context of the family and the relationship of king and people is covenantal, requiring loyal love, obedience, and trust. Adam is not an average Joe. Sometimes you think that Adam was just an average Joe, just a man. No, he was a king over creation. He's placed as king over creation. He's a covenantal head over creation. That's very important. He's not just any man. He's a king and priest under God and over the whole humanity. There was a covenant relationship between the great king, the Lord God, and his vice-regent, Adam. Another important aspect as we think about this covenant in creation with Adam and Eve and how it is a, a covenant right there is how, and that's, I think that's one of the most clear evidences that there is a covenant, is how the things that take place in Genesis 1 through 3 will repeat in a typological manner with the other covenants. So the fact that what's taking place with Adam and Eve in the beginning, that relationship there repeats with Noah, Abraham, Israel, David, the new covenant with Jesus, is a clear indication that it is covenantal, the relationship right there. So for example... All the themes that we have right there, priesthood, kingship, seed, a good land, God's gracious presence with man is progressive developed through the different covenants. And finally, as we think about the Adamic covenant, and that for me is the most fundamental aspect of the Adamic covenant is the comparison between Adam and Jesus. It would make no sense to compare Jesus with Adam if Adam was not the covenant head of the old creation. Paul describes the whole history of humanity under two kings, two federal heads, Adam and Jesus. So when Paul is dividing humanity, he divides humanity under two groups, those in Adam those in Christ Jesus. <clears throat> I remember someone saying that he did not believe that Adam was the covenantal representative of humanity. And the professor asked him, so, but do you believe that Adam was the federal head of humanity? Yes, I believe that Adam was the federal head of humanity. But there is no covenant creation with Adam. Uh, do you know what the word federal means? It means covenant. Ah! And that's how Paul sees. Paul sees humanity under two kingships. Under the rule of Adam and under the rule of Christ Jesus.
So, for example, in Romans chapter 5, Paul says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sin, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was what? A type of the one who was to come. Or 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 21 through 22. For as by a man came death, by a man has, also, has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all died, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. And he's not talking about universalism here, that everybody will be saved. He's, there's a very noticeable contrast. Those in Adam, they die, and those who are in Christ will live. So, Adam stands as the covenant or federal head over the first and old creation. And Jesus stands as the covenant federal head of the new humanity, the new creation. Amen? So, I think it's worth quoting here. It's a longer quote, but I ask you to pay attention because that's very helpful. Gentry New Alam, they say, Scripture clearly teaches that all humans fall under the rep representative headship of either Adam or Christ. And that's what we, we, we talk about when you're going through Philippians. There are only two races. The Adamic race and the Christian race. That's it. People are either in Adam or in Jesus. Adam represents all that is tied to the old creation and this present age, characterized by sin, death, and judgment. Christ represents all that is associated with the new creation and the new covenant, which from the perspective of the Old Testament prophets is identified with the age to come characterized by salvation, life, restoration of what was lost in the fall. Given this fact, it seems, little di seems difficult to think of Christ as the head of the new covenant without Adam being the head of some kind of covenant in the original situation. As God's image bearer and son, Adam is given the mandate to rule over God's creation, to put all things under his feet, like Psalm 8 says, and to establish the pattern of God's kingdom in this world. But sadly, Adam disobeys. And unless God acts in grace and power, all people stand under divine judgment and wrath. Thankfully, however, God does not leave us to ourselves, but instead chooses to save us by promising a Redeemer, the seed of the woman, which drives the entire storyline of the Bible. But here's the sad part. As we think about Adam as this covenant rep representative, he's in a covenant with God. Adam breaks the covenant. Adam broke the covenant. Adam was commissioned by God to rule, subdue, conquer the land. <clears throat> as Seth Postel, he writes, the language of, of the creation mandate is both royal and overtly mili militaristic. 
Adam is to act like a king and priest in obedience to the great king, guarding the sanctuary of the Lord and expanding the sanctuary throughout the world. That was his duty. That was his role, Adam, as a king-priest. But what happens with Adam? He was supposed to subdue and conquer the animals. But what happens? He's conquered by a snake. As a priest, he was supposed to keep the beautiful sanctuary where God was present. He was supposed to keep that place clean from unclean animals. And what does he do? He entertains a serpent, an unclean animal in that place. Instead of obeying the word of the king, he obeys the word of a serpent. And then the glorious fellowship that the covenant creation had allowed Adam and Eve to enjoy is broken. The love that a son owes his father and the loyalty that a vice regent owes his supreme king were not given to the Lord by Adam. And then what is the greatest tragedy? What happens to Adam and Eve? <clears throat> Death. They died spiritually. They died spiritually. They're hiding themselves from God. They're scared. They're ashamed. And because they're dead spiritually, that leads to exile. They're removed from the presence of God. Adam had been placed in a good land where God was graciously, was graciously, graciously present, walking with him. But because of his covenantal disobedience, he's expelled of that good land. But here's the beauty. In the midst of this covenantal unfaithfulness, God is always faithful. And then comes Genesis 3.15. And God, He's faithful to His holiness. He's faithful to His righteousness. So He brings judgment and curse upon mankind, upon Satan, the serpent. And yet... He keeps being faithful to His mercy, to His grace. And He gives a covenantal promise in Genesis chapter 3. And that's in verse 15. And some people here believe, okay, now this promise is the covenant of grace. I, I don't think so. I, I don't think that there was a covenant of works before and now it starts the covenant of grace. No. Still all part of a covenantal God who is faithful to his covenant. It's like a spouse who has an unfaithful spouse, and yet due to his faithfulness, to his faithfulness to his covenant, even though the spouse has broken the covenant, he promises goodness and love and support towards that spouse. And that's what's happening here. It's not a new covenant here. It's the promise of a God who is faithful to his covenant. So he says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her what? seed. And the seed here is important because it's masculine singular. So right in Genesis 3.15, we have the promise that someone who will be a man, a king, will come.
He, the seed, will bruise your head and you will bruise his heel. There is the promise that someone from the line of Eve will come and undo what Adam failed to do. He will restore what Adam failed to do. Adam as a king was supposed to rule, conquer the enemy. He was supposed to keep the sanctuary of the Lord clean. And he failed. But the Lord says, now one will come. And he will do what Adam failed to do. He will restore creation. He will conquer the serpent. And then we read, he shall bruise your head. Implies victory. The seed will crush, he will smash the serpent's head. That implies victory. But there is also an aspect of this victory, how this victory will come. Because he says that the serpent shall what? Bruise the seed's heel. How does a serpent bruise someone? Taking a bite. That implies pain and even death. So this seed will conquer through pain and death. Right there. For people who think that the sufferings of Christ are something completely new, that's so messed up. It's right there in Genesis 3.15. That the Messiah will conquer, but he will conquer through pain and death. And then this promise of the seed develops throughout the scriptures. So all these aspects of the Adamic covenant are developed throughout the drum of scripture. See how sad it is when you go to Genesis just looking for scientific arguments to debate. You miss the whole beauty of what's taking place here. Kingship. Priesthood, sacrifice, shame, sin, exile, God's presence in a good land. All these things are being developed throughout the scriptures. And all begins right here in the Adamic covenant. That's why you will not understand the rest of scriptures if you don't understand what's taking place here. Sadly, many people think you need to understand what's taking place here, but they're thinking about scientific reasons instead of the theological reasons they are developing throughout the scriptures from, from here. It's a beautiful, it's a beautiful covenant that's being developed now throughout the rest of the scriptures. Adam is a king, he's a priest. We're going to see with Noah, same thing. Abraham, the aspect of kingship. He meets a king and priest of Salem. Israel is called to be a kingdom of priests. All these things are being developed. A good land with God's presence. That's Abraham. Transfer to a good land. Israel to a good land. Shame, sin, the seed. It's all here and it's going to be developed through the other covenants. Okay? So, Kimball and Spellman, they say, while the first Adam brought about sin, condemnation, and death, a new Adam is needed who will bring about righteousness, justification, and life. 
So the covenantal structure of Scripture points to this very direction. And if you're reading Genesis, if you're reading Genesis and you're expecting this seed and you're tracing through the genealogies of Genesis, you come to Noah and honestly you think this is the man. This is the seed. It's just natural. If you're reading the book of Genesis, when you come to Noah, you say, here it is, the seed of the woman. So we come to the Noah covenant. As I said early in the beginning, the, the, the problem with familiarity. You ask most Christians what they know about Noah. The only thing they remember about Noah is what? The ark. Children's Sunday school. The ark with the animals. Other Christians, they are striving to know about the flood just so they can know about what? The flood and the consequence of the flood and so they can debate with other people. And we forget that without Noah, we have no Christ. This man is so important in the history of redemption that you remove him. You remove what's taking place here. We have no Jesus Christ. This covenant will hold the plan of redemption together. Have you ever thought about that? No Noah, no Christ. So as we try to see the coherence of the scriptures and how the drum of redemption is held together, the covenant with Noah plays a vital role. That's the first time where the word berit, covenant, appears in the story of Noah. So that's why some scholars believe that the first covenant is with Noah. But it's, the language used there is a language different from cutting a covenant. When you hear about cutting a covenant, that implies a new covenant. And the idea here with what we have in the Hebrew Bible is that God is basically upholding the covenant with creation. Yes, there is newness, there are new aspects to this covenant, but it's following very close to the covenant with creation in Adam, as the Lord is preserving creation for the coming of the seed. So, what we have in the first chapters here of the Noah's account is the opposite of what was supposed to happen with Adam and Eve. The covenant mandate for Adam and his posterity was to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. But now it's carried in a very different way when you come to Genesis 6. There we behold the multiplication. They multiplied in wickedness. The earth was filled with violence. And Moses is playing here. He's using the same words of Genesis 1 and 2. So instead of multiplying with image bearers of God... There is a multiplication of weakness and sin. Instead of filling the earth, the land, with replicas of God, they're filling the earth with violence and evil. And the Lord beheld evil. In Genesis 1 and 2, all that God beholds is what? Good. And He behold and it was good. And God saw that was good. Very good. And you come to Genesis 6 and God saw and was what? Evil. 
The sons of God follow after the likeness of Adam in doing evil in the sight of the Lord. Evil, sinfulness, unrighteousness rule humanity after the fall. And that grieved the Lord's heart. Therefore, he comes in judgment. And he comes in judgment, and the judgment is very fascinating because it's the completely reversal of creation. What we have in Genesis 6 through 8 is the completely opposite of what we see in Genesis 1 and 2. The language that Moses used here is unmistakable. He's playing, he's showing, hey, here's a decreation that's taking place. Instead of bringing order to the land by separating it from the waters, the Lord brings the chaotic waters and death by immersing the land under the water. Remember Genesis 1 and 2. You have the water lifeless, and the Lord brings land. Here, no, you have the land, you have the earth, and the Lord brings water to cover with death. Look at the similarities with Genesis 1 and 2. It says in Genesis 7, The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep, and all flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind, all language from Genesis 1 and 2. In Genesis 1 and 2, we have life. In Genesis 7, we have death of all these creatures. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. Do you see? All the language of Genesis 1 and 2. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground. Men and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. The completely opposite of creation. There is a decreation here. Instead of separating the waters and the land and bringing harmony and life. No. He brings water and cover everything with death. And that's important because something very similar that's taking place here. You see, we are following the pattern of the covenant creation. Now it's the covenant with Noah, but it's the opposite. And that will happen also in the covenant with Moses and Israel. Because something very similar will take place in Egypt. Where the waters, the chaotic, the waters of death will cover the whole army of Egypt that represents Egypt itself. Egypt is covering death during the Passover. The waters of judgment under the Noah covenant is a type of the waters of judgment upon Egypt. But the Lord has a covenant. He has a promise that He made and He's faithful to His promise. Therefore, he rescues one man, Noah. Noah is described very similar to Adam. He's described as a pre-fall Adam. We are told in Genesis chapter 6 that Noah walked with God, meaning that he had fellowship and communion with God, just like Adam before the fall. Noah is described as a righteous man, blameless. So that's what I'm saying. If you are reading the account of Genesis, you come to Noah and say, whoa, 
Here is the seed. He walks with God. Nobody else is walking with God. Everybody's distant from God. He's blameless. He's righteous. Here's the seed. He looks like Adam. You see Adam? And then you continue the narrative, and you read that, it says in Genesis 8:4, and in the seventh, seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest. Noach on the mountains of Ararat. It's God placing Noah in this mountain. He rested Noah in this mountain. The same word is used in Genesis 2.15 when the Lord took the man, Adam, and rested him in the Garden of Eden, the other mountain of the Lord. He rested Noah in this mountain just like he had rested Adam on his mountain. Is this an Adam figure? And you start noticing this pattern of the, t- the, the, the mountain of the Lord, this place where he brings his people to worship him. Similarly, in Psalm 132, we read, For the Lord has chosen Zion, the Mount Zion. He has desired for his dwelling place. This is my what? My resting place. Same Hebrew word there. Resting upon a mountain. So he can have his people to worship him. And you see this pattern from Adam now to Noah. And you're going to see through Abraham, Israel, moving from the waters of chaos to the mountain of the Lord for worship. That's a very important pattern. The waters of death in creation, Genesis 1-2, there was no life. The Lord brings the land, he makes his mountain, he places Adam to worship. Noah, the waters of death, God brings him, places him on a mountain to worship him. Moses, what happens to Moses? He passes through the water of death, and where was Moses inside when he was a baby? An ark, that's the same Hebrew word. He's in the ark. Passing through the waters of death, the Lord brings him to a mountain to meet with him. And that will happen with Israel. Israel passes through the waters and goes to a mountain to worship the Lord. That's a pattern that from Adam starts flowing throughout the scriptures. Noah's ark is actually structured as a temple. We are going to see that when we walk through Genesis. The language of the building of an ark is just the language that Moses used for the building of a temple. It's just like a temple, and it is. You think about the temples in ancient times, they were a representation of the cosmos. Since the, the world was God's temple, the temple was a representation of the world. That's why you look at the temple and you have images of animals, and you have water, you have creation. It's representing there the cosmos. And that's what we see, this, uh, just uh, God with Noah in this temple, preserving him, graciously staying with him. We have this ark that's basically a temple, and this temple rests upon a mountain. What happens in Zion? Where, what do they build on top of Zion? The temple of the Lord. So this pattern is following. So 
from the Adamic to Noahic and continues. And it's interesting that the waters of judgment alone did not appease God's grieving heart. It's only when Noah acts as a priest and offers up a whole burnt offering on the top of the mountain that the Lord is appeased. So we see Noah acting like what? When he's offering a burnt offering. A priest. He's a king now over humanity, ruling, subduing the animals, just like Adam, but he's also a priest. He's on top of the mountain offering what? A burnt offering, having a meal with the Lord. That's what the offerings were. They were basically a meal that you're having with the Lord, just like a priest. The sign of the covenant with Noah. So in Genesis 9, verses 8 through 17, you have the covenant being ratified, and there God promised to preserve the old creation until the coming of the new creation. So we read, and God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the land, the earth. In Hebrew, you don't have rainbow. You don't have a word for rainbow. You just have a word for bow. That's, and what we have here is a picture of God as a warrior who conquered the war. He put to death, and now he's hanging his bow on the clouds and saying, For now, I'm done. I will never do that again. I will not destroy like that again until the new creation comes. So he's suspending his weapon of war and showing I will have mercy on creation until Christ comes and inaugurates the new creation. So basically God promised that humanity will not be annihilated before the promise of Genesis 3.15 is realized. That's what Tom Schreiner writes. God's gracious purpose for human beings will not be frustrated. And he must preserve creation itself. You might say, so why, why is he preserving creation? Animals. We cannot live without animals. Why is he preserving the trees and the grass and the water? Why? Can animals survive without that? So do you see how it's all connected? That's why he's preserving creation because by preserving creation, he can preserve mankind in order for the Messiah to come and bring salvation. So, as we finish here, the implications of the Noah covenant. There are many, they're beautiful. I think the most important one is that through this covenant, God is preserving the line of the Messiah. The Messiah lineage is preserved through Noah. Second, in Psalm 15, 1 and 2, we read, O Lord, who shall, who shall sojourn into your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy mountain? And then he says, He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart. Who shall come into your mountain? Who shall come to Eden once again? He who is Righteousness, who does what is righteous, who possesses righteousness and is blameless. How is Noah described? 
righteous and blameless. That's what I'm saying. If you're reading the account, you think, okay, here is the man. Here is the seed that we are looking for. We know that because even Noah's father, Lamech, he believed that Noah was the seed. Look at how, what he says. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us what? Rest, relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. You see the expectation. The father believes that this is the seed. And as you're reading Genesis, you think that he is the one. He's righteous. He's blameless. Finally. But what happens? He's still a son of Adam. No. He falls just like his father. And the fall of Noah is very similar to the fall of Adam. The language used is very similar. Noah, like Adam, he needs a savior. He needs the seed to come. So, the seed of the woman will, not, will now come through Noah, the covenant mediator in his family. And it is this seed who will reverse the effects of sin and usher in a new creation. In this way, Noah functions as another Adam, as the new head of the, of the human race. And is called to be an obedient son. Yet Noah also demonstrates by his, by his disobedience that the problem of the human heart remains. Ultimately, what is needed, which the biblical covenants will develop, is a greater heart transformation tied to the forgiveness of sins, literally brought about by God's Spirit, so that humans will fulfill the purpose and, of their creation. In addition, its universal scope, the Noahic Covenant, also reminds us that God's purpose ultimately encompasses not just one people or nation, but the entire creation. One of, one of the things we hear the most, especially in our days, is when people are going through a hard time, it's just, they just need a, a fresh start. Just give a fresh start. Have you ever heard people saying that? I just need a new start, a fresh start. Went through a divorce. I want to move. I want to get a new haircut. I just need a new start. Has God given a new start to humanity? Look at the flood. It kills everybody. Does a fresh start work? Because you continue reading and you see that sin remains. And people rebel against the Lord. We do not need a new start. Noah shows us that. What we need is literally to be demolished, to be put to death, and then to be made new in Christ Jesus. That's all we need. And that's what the gospel is. We don't need simply a new or fresh start. We need to die and be buried in Jesus and then be resurrected as a new creation. As all living things emerge out of the ark with Noah, so an entire new creation emerges out of the cross and the grave in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And according to Revelation chapter 6, the bow is now 
in the hands of Christ Jesus. He's bringing judgment upon the earth. He's alerting us that the new creation has started. And a much worse judgment is about to come. The flood is nothing compared to the judgment that's to come. Honestly. Because with the flood, there was the chance of saving men, repenting. But when his final judgment comes, there is no chance of repenting. So you see, today is the day of salvation. Today is the day of grace. Today is the day of mercy. Because the day that he will immerse people under his wrath is coming. And there will be no chance. So for those who are in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation. But for those who are in Adam, great is the condemnation. In Adam, there is hostility, anger, malice, prejudice, racism, division. But in Christ Jesus, we are made a new creation. The wall of hostility is destroyed. The chains of love in the Holy Spirit chain our hearts together. In Christ, instead of following after Noah and getting drunk with wine, we are filled with the Holy Spirit and sing to one another. Instead of humiliating and bringing shame upon another like Noah's son, we cover a multitude of sins with garments of love in Christ. In Christ, we have the image and likeness of God restored so that the church now is God's royal priesthood proclaiming, like Brian read here, the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness. Amen. Great is his faithfulness. Great is His faithfulness. When we, in Adam, in Noah, we failed and we were unfaithful, He remains faithful. Amen? Father, thank You for Your love, Your kindness, Your mercy upon us. Thank You for Your plan of redemption revealed through beautiful covenants. Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in Him. And we are delighted to study your great works of redemption, Lord. And be vessels of mercy. Thank you for Jesus Christ. Thank you that in Him, we can truly live. In Him, there is true salvation. Thank you for overwhelming us with your love. And I pray to guide us in righteousness for your name's sake. It's in Christ that we pray. Amen. Amen.